Hi, and welcome to the Miseducation of the SLP. My name is Ingrid, and I'm your host. And my name is Ayelet. I'm your other host. And we are here with episode 11, which is part two of the absolute outstanding academic SLP turned business owner. And um, we're just so excited for part two of this juicy, juicy story. <laughs> Can't wait to hear the rest of our uh, hashtag girl boss story. Boy, girl boss. So when I last left you guys, I kind of just indicated this wonderful, wonderful, wonderful SLP decided, okay, so I'm in the school system. I've reached my fifth year. I've been doing all this stuff to kind of um, get myself in a place where I understand what I'm doing as an SLP. And then she got called back into faculty. She got called back into doing her job the way that she normally does her job, which for her was in the academic arena. In that space, um, it was basically interviews and delays and time. So there was like this nine month gap where she was at home with her children and, you know, for her particularly, it was not the easiest thing to just be at home. There's a lot of daydreaming. There's a lot of la la land. There's a lot of creativity going on in there. Um, dance, play, you know, active minds really need some challenge. And so she was like, let me just start doing something really cool. So what does she do? She starts a blog. She reads a bunch of academic articles and applies the and picks the ones that apply to clinical practice today. Valuable shit. <laughs> Interesting. You know, she's the, you know, representation of, listen, I know it's hard. You got a lot of shit going on. Let me just do my part in contributing and summarizing it for you so you don't have to dig too deep. Oh, I love that. Right? That, that is, like, so necessary in our field, especially for – you know, our SLPs out there in the schools or in those buildings with high productivity standards, like we don't have time sometimes to sift through all that evidence-based information. That That's awesome. Absolutely. The gift that keeps on giving. And for her, the area of expertise was pediatric preschool, you know, and that's a really huge booming market for speech-language pathologists. So there was this experience of her like, okay, I'm just going to do this blog, you know, I'm just going to go on the social media platforms and I'm just going to let you guys know because why not? Like I have this capacity to just do this thing and I have the time right now. So then she gets back into academia after about the, you know, nine months or so and she's doing that and it's fantastic. She's back in the, the world, but the business starts to grow and it grows to the point where after about a year and a half, it's over 10,000 plus email subscribers. Wow. And it's like, oh, okay, well, <laughs> what I had originally signed up for was what you would consider a service-based um, credit for a PhD. 
what she explained to me is that when you're going through a PhD experience, you have this aspect of kind of being service oriented so that you can get a promotion, get a raise. These are things that you're doing to basically contribute back to your profession. It's a really interesting dynamic in the in the PhD arena. That's how you get promotions. I don't know if you know anything about that. I don't. I really don't. This is all new to me. Okay. So basically in the in the way that she explained it to me, it just kind of goes into you've literally got to put yourself in a situation where you are either serving in a space of legislation, serving in a space of ASHA. Serve, you've got to be doing something somewhere to put yourself in a space of value. Service-based is what makes you important in this realm of academia. And writing a blog and educating other SLPs is a 100% a valued space. And it is what she kind of thought this was going to be. But when it got that big, (laughs) that quickly in a year and a half, and she was really spending like, 40 to 60 hours a month reading articles, promoting them, all that stuff. Her husband, her husband comes in, looks at her and says, it's time to monetize, honey. (laughs) He's not wrong. It is time to monetize. And so because of the fact that he specializes this wonderful partner of hers in life specializes in growth for businesses, recognizing and understanding how businesses can become profitable and progress and what their potentials are. He recognized that in his own wife, the interest that he showed significant and really kind of dope. And the state of saying, this is what we're going to do now, just because it's important for all of us. Yeah. So she took that advice and built her life in a manner to kind of function in line with that. So it was good for her to have a partner that was like, I see the potential in you based on what you've accomplished. And this is what I recommend. And probably in some senses offered whatever expertise that he could, because obviously with a master's in business administration, it gives you access to things that are helpful. And if you specialize in business growth and accessibility, it also helps you. And so you have this streamlined individual that's really on your team to help you get to where you feel uh, this profession needs to go. There's something really phenomenal about that. Yeah, that's really, you know, uh, like quite a gift to have, you know, someone in your corner that has that kind of background and is able to help you, you know, make the most of your potential and, and grow your business. Absolutely. I think every SLP um, would love to have that kind of exchange with their husband. <laughs> <laughs> because I think we all feel like we could be an excellent business, right? <laughs> yes, absolutely. So as it goes on, she begins to kind of move herself through the business realm. As she moves through the business realm, she starts to see like the organizations that operate under the business realm, which include ASHA, because 
I don't know if any of you guys understand, a non-for-profit organization is still a business. And that is ASHA. So it gives us a perspective of getting to, well, what does this model really look like? And so as she's starting to begin to navigate this, she sees like, oh my God, SLPs are really preyed upon. Wow. SLPs are really preyed upon. We are taken advantage of left and right in the business arena. Preaching to the choir. (laughs) We're told to take this certification that costs an exorbitant amount of money. Uh, Every single year. And it probably costs pennies in comparison to actually produce and provide to the speech language pathologists. So we're in situations where, for example, one that she decided to relay, there's, you know, certifications that may cost $2,000 that take $50 to produce so that we can line the pockets of business owners. Or the ones that you pay for the certification and then pay for the product. And then the product has parts that you need to buy every single time that are one-time use. And you're just you know, continuously, like they should be, they should be teaching you this for free. If you know, you're going to be buying the product over and over and over and over and over and over again, over the course of your career. Absolutely. 1000%. There's such a nice cushiony experience of lining fat pockets in this arena to take advantage of probably you know, a considerably or like a comparatively low paying master's degree arena with so much business profitability. And like how, and you know, that kind of leads into this um, other concept of how we, you know, feel like we need to work for these bigger organizations that have the opportunity to provide us with trainings with certifications or with reimbursement for the trainings that we want to do versus like, you know, what would, what we would be able to accomplish on our own. You know, it brings to mind for me, like when I worked for one of these big rehab companies that gave you up a certain amount of money that they would reimburse you for, if you took some kind of trainings, you know, there was a training course that I really wanted to take and we got a huge discount through our company for taking it, that if I had wanted to take it by myself, I would have paid almost double for this same exact course, same exact time, same exact day, same exact everything. But because I was, you know, a part of this large company, I could get the group discount. Um, So, you know, I jumped all in, was ready to do it. I paid my money up front, paid for the course. You know, I did get the discount because I was a part of the company. And then I got let go before I was able to get my, submit my reimbursement. So I wound up having to shoulder the cost of that whole training on my own. Wow. <laughs> but it's okay. Cause I got let go. Cause I showed, I showed a lack of initiative was the uh, reasoning there. I mean, for me, I think if there was, a return on investment in the space of what you could accomplish 
in your actual role where you could present your certification or your your additional education and there be a monetary component to it, great. At this point, there's not that. We don't have a monetary component for continued education. So businesses understand our desire to be really excellent at what we do. And so they, you know, basically put out all these products, all these things that we're trying to do to help our patients. And it's the idea that it's so costly when they know that we're just trying to do our best for our patients and not offering it in a way that's like relatively affordable um, becomes kind of tough. It's not everybody. It's not every circumstance. It's not every experience. I do not put this as a blanket statement for all businesses across the board. And I never want any, you know, buddy to interpret this as a, a, a statement that applies to themselves. I think we all need to kind of self-evaluate though. Are we applying the best practices to this discipline that is really devoid of a lot of financial comfortableness? We're struggling in within it because we're in a society that doesn't pay us well. Um, and for the people that have the capacity to pay these prices, are they from the environment that has access to a dual income home that's more financially affluent? Can we start discussing why those things are possible versus some of the other portions of the organization that can't do it? Mm -hmm. Where does that where does that gap actually leave us in a harder place? You know, a disjointed place. Can we do that? Yeah, I. I mean, I totally hear you and I know I've been, you know, I've been there where, you know, you work with, you know, work with a colleague or someone who, who is, you know, doing their job just as extra income because they are being supported by, you know, a spouse or even by parents, depending on their age. And, you know, they can go out and buy all the best materials and, you know, get everything that they need because their money is, their money is like a disposable income on top of what, you know, is being brought into the family residence. Whereas, you know, those of us who, you know, didn't necessarily have, you know, I, I didn't always have that. I, you know, I, I worked when I was single and, and, you know, was struggling to get by and, you know, there, there is a big difference in, you know, what each of us is able to, bring to the table what each of us is able to supply, pay for, purchase. Um, even though we are, you know, in the same field, we don't start on a level ground. Right. So when I think about, you know, this academic SLP turned businesswoman, I'm like, okay, so you just started blogging the top 20 journals of what you thought was dope because you were at PhD you know, directed and, you know, you worked as an SLP and you married this individual that just happened to have this in intelligence and this converging of all these amazing things just really aligned for you and got you to the position where your shit blew up, your blog blew up, everybody loved it. You're just in the right place at the right time with the right information and the right scope and the right connection and the right understanding of all the right things. And it just all just 
was this beautiful vortex and I'm here for it going, oh my God, this is so amazing. Like this could be real. This could be real. No one has ever told me that this could be real. I didn't know. I didn't know you can go to this capacity of PhD to clinician to businesswoman. Like I didn't know all the facets that you could do, especially when supported. So I'm like calling my husband, like, show up, sir. I'm ready. Husband, if you come, I can go be amazing too. Cause I want to be amazing. <laughs> and even if I don't have a husband, I don't know. I would say it's important to recognize that being on different places where we start is what exposes us to recognizing um, the differences between each of our journeys as SLPs and why there's such a different experience amongst all of us. Um, the academic turned SLP turned um, businesswoman really had this kind of expression when she said, she's like, you know, the people I'm surrounded by, either my father's going to take care of things or my husband's going to take care of things. That was really normal for her. Mm -hmm. um, she said that with full like confidence about her arena. And I'm like, I don't know people like that. <laughs> I'm from an entirely different scope, different experience, different understanding. And so in that, like how her life unfolded with the aspects of being with the right person in the right time and all that stuff, the likelihood of that for her and her success potential because of the population that she's working within, that she understands, that she moves within, that are possibly more financially affluent, all of those things kind of play a role in my brain as I listen to this story. I was just thinking like, as I'm listening to you talk about this and as, you know, thinking about what we were just discussing with, you know, you know, people having more access to income, we haven't even begun to touch on, you know, that exterior also, uh, you know, and how that's perceived when we go into a job interview. And I'm sure that you have lots of thoughts on this being a black woman, but, you know, even to a lesser degree, like I remember reading an article once that, you know, said that women with curly hair get perceived to be as less professional than women with straight hair, you know, and uh, for me, a big thing that my mom used to tell me, even before I was, you know, professional, was always to, you know, I even in high school, like I always had trouble getting a job. I could never get a job if I mm -hmm. went to a store. And I know this is totally weird uh, for people today where everything's online. But if I went and like filled out an application at the mall and handed it in, I would never hear back if I didn't see the manager. And my mom was like, well, maybe use a nickname and don't write, I yell it on the application because they're not calling you back because they can't pronounce your name. And I, that really bothered me. You know, even though my mom is the one who named me and my mom is the one who was telling me. And I was like, I shouldn't have to change my name for somebody to call me back, you know, but 
unless I actually went in and spoke to a manager or really more than likely had somebody who worked there who put, you know, who put in a reference for me, I never got calls back for jobs. And I really do think that that was part of the problem is my name. Um, even to the extent of, and I will never forget this. Um, I took a driver's ed class in high school. And when they went and broke us up into cars, I was in a, I was like a class full of like white kids. And I wound up in the car with three Indian boys who all had unpronounceable names. And I remember in high school being like, they, they put us here together because they looked at our names and were like, oh, we'll group this, you know, this group of four together. Wait, what? So, I mean, <laughs> yeah, like, I, I mean, that was my, you know, that's how I perceived it. But they put me in a car with three other boys who all had names that were very difficult to pronounce. That doesn't seem like a coincidence. <laughs> I don't like that. I don't like that. I don't like it. I don't think that's acceptable behavior. It's not. But I mean, it's the truth of what's out there. So when we're talking about like getting jobs and not starting out on equal footing, I think that, I mean, those things obviously come into play also. I mean, it just, it comes into the idea that and this is really a hard topic. And I, when I was discussing things with this wonderful business owner who is really trying to be transparent with me because there's a scaling of all the aspects, right? There's the research portion, there's the employee per portion, and then there's the overse overseeing business portion. Operating in those fields, you kind of get like, what interesting vantage points and the miseducation for her as a business owner is how much there is this like pervasive historical structure of it all and when you look at the business model it is very much slave reference the overseers the people that kind of see everything and you know check dots and create policies and procedures as they move to take over the world and international trade and all that stuff. The labor force that's just working really hard and doing their very best, they get really pennies to the, to the effort. You know, it's why there's a, um, you know, a lack of respect for the housekeeper or the CNA. I get intelligence being crucial, your capacity to learn really important information to advance and change lives or advance and change society. I am not saying that that does not hold value in a way that requires you to have like a leadership position because there are leaders and there are followers. And I do recognize there should be a difference in that. But How there are also people out there who are leaders who just won the lottery in terms of having access to the education and the connections that allowed them to be put in a place of leadership when in reality they are not any better than, you know, the housekeeper or the CNA who didn't have the advantages and opportunities. Yeah. 
I mean, leadership for all of us is a situation where you, you're good at it because it's in you or you're bad at it, but execute it because it fits within the, the corporate structure that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And so we all have to be mindful or you have enough support to where you can branch into your own space to do it. For some speech language pathologists, that has been their wheelhouse is to be able to say, I've created enough cushion for myself, either with a husband or just from my own financial well-being because I made these choices to become independent business owners that execute things in businessy ways. And I'm like, that's fantastic. But I really, I don't want to infuse a lot of business into speech language pathology anymore. I don't want to infuse business in healthcare anymore. I think that's really a toxic way of doing the best job. Well, and that, I mean, that really just gets to the whole root of the healthcare issues in this country of, you know, that our healthcare decisions at the end of the day are being decided on by for-profit companies, not by people who are, you know, looking to get you the best care that you can, you know, that you can get. You know, we have a middleman whose sole goal is to extract as much money out of the situation as they can. <clears throat> that shouldn't be part of our healthcare system. Um, well, I think in general, we've kind of allowed that to be the case, right? That's why there's a lot of encroachment. I think I made that word up. <laughs> I, think, I think you might have. Oh my God. Doesn't that sound amazing? Encroachment. Encroachment. <laughs> I don't know. I just feel like, <clears throat> after talking to her, especially in reviewing it in the overall scope, you know, our discipline kind of has it rough, but there's a portion of us that have lots of advantage and a portion of us that don't. And the, the absolute um, numbers of that kind of skewed. Um, when I was talking to this SLP particularly, because she's really in it and she has more exposure than I do and more followers than I do and more, it's like just pure access. Mm. She made it abundantly clear for her vantage point. There's definitely more on her side than on mine um, in the space of what looks like the SLP arena. It really is highly white, highly affluential on the majority end. And so there's not a lot of discomfort there. So then if you're not really uncomfortable, what's going to motivate you to do things that are going to change the business model for the SLP to be the most profitable space, especially if we want to be a patient-centered discipline that really helps patients and aren't in it for the money. Well, I mean, I think that uh, that's really the case. If you're not uncomfortable, if you're happy with what you're, what you do, if your income is just extra, it's just a bonus. If you are finding yourself in places where, um, you know, your exterior leads to increased perception of value, then you don't, feel like things need to change because things are just fine for you the way you are. You know, that's not how a lot of us feel. Um, 
And I do think that there are a lot of us that feel this way, you know, just by reading the, the Facebook pages and reading posts and comments from people about how burnt out they are and how frustrated they are and, and how difficult they're finding our field to be lately. But I mean, if you're, if you found a good job and you are treated well and you are fine with whatever you're making, um, of course, there's no reason to try to upend the system because the system is working just fine for you. I think I yell it. I realize the power of algorithms because the things that you see that you find to be an overwhelming story. I also understand that other SLPs don't have that experience and they do see a lot of the like go-getters, the exciters, the ones that are doing great things and they're not showing any negativity and they are only showing the positive aspects of this career and they're living that Stedford wife type of thing where mm-hmm. you only see the good things. There are absolutely meccas of that, like vibrating through. And our message, to be perfectly honest, you and I sitting here could be a jarring shock to them where they're thinking to themselves, these people are insane. This <laughs> career ever it's so fantastic we can do anything we want we could be an actual surprise to people and we need to understand that as messengers across the board that our understanding of what we think is so common knowledge that in certain spaces it really isn't that great and it's doing a lot of damaging things that's not everybody's reality. It absolutely is not. And I mean, I think that, you know, for some of us, <laughs> we knew, like I knew in grad school that I was not the typical, like super speechy um, SLP type A, you know, that, uh, what do they call us? Like the pumps and pearls SLP that is always walking around with like a pristine uh, lap coat and high heels while everyone else is in scrubs. That was that was that was a hundred percent the statement at that time for sure. We were definitely as a discipline talked about like that. The stilettos and the lap coat and the pearls. That disposition of speech language pathologist was a hundred percent there um, in terms of a nomer, of an idea. And you as a Jewish American New Yorker and me as a, you know, first generation Haitian, you know, we bonded with our cohort, which were a significant amount of diverse speech language pathologists, including a guy. I don't remember what his name is, but he was dope. There was a few. There was a few. More than one. No, there was one that graduated in our cohort in my cohort, but I don't remember his name specifically, but he was the one I remembered significantly. Mm. Um, there was I a- remember a few more because I was a TA, so I know I, I worked with, uh, so I had some of them in my class. But <laughs> Oh, they were after us, though. That means that yes, they were Yes, you're right. Were, yeah. Well, I, were- I know I, I personally worked with one um, who had a very strong accent, um, and we did accent reduction. He was actually my client as well as, you know, uh, my colleague and fellow student in grad school. Um, but we would work. 
controversial. Yeah, we worked you. on we worked on accent reduction with him, and I do believe that after I graduated, um, I don't know if they officially did, but there was some talk that he was counseled out of the program because of his accent, which I have a lot of uh, feelings about. Well, there is some components of understanding the hardships and the benefits of having a thick accent in this arena. So um, I try not to judge it one way or the other based on the perspective of what the ultimate objective is. I mean, but you wouldn't counsel someone out of the program if they had like a strong Southern accent or a strong New York accent um, I, it, or a strong Boston accent. It is, was specifically targeting people with Latino accents. So I hear that. I also always consider that the phonemic production, if you're going to model it, you have to produce it. And not all, but I, I, I don't agree at all with the idea that you counsel somebody out of a program. I am not a person that's on that side. What I'm trying to do is say there's multiple perspectives to this conversation. We can only present ours, but I'm trying to be thoughtful of the other point of view, which is to say, like, if you can't say the R that we produce when we're trying um, and that's what we guide a lot of children towards because you say, er. <laughs> and sounds wonderful. Yes. Sounds great. And we don't disrespect it. We love the, ar. <laughs> but we need you to say, ar. <laughs> but there is a community where that is acceptable and working within that of community course. would be acceptable. Of course. So I get all of that. It's like I said, a rock and a hard place in the sense of the movement of what's happening with our discipline. Yes, I wish I could say you're 100% correct, Ayala. We need to move, be moving like that right now today. But it's not structured like that, unfortunately. And unless we demand that structure by moving in action, we're, we're being a little bit too entitled with the idea that we should say how it should be, continue to push the envelope with how it should be, but not actually doing any physical changes to make it so that it needs to be. Because I don't see multidisciplinary assessments coming out left and right. No. I don't see Spanish, you know, accented assessments coming out. I don't see people working to make sure that those things are properly respected from both clinician and patient. I do see there's like translations that are occurring, but is it based on the normative data on the same normative data? Is it just translated or is it actually worked in those populations and created for those populations with their cognitive reasoning and their thought processes and their sciences? Like, have we really done it that far or did we just think because we translated it that it all makes sense? Well, I think that that's, I mean, that's a very like Western American, white American philosophy, English speaking, white American, Western philosophy. Um, and actually, I will tell you now, Ingrid, I know this was a running joke for us in grad school, but, you know, when we had a test, who was the first person done? Oh, my God. Stop. I'm not even going to say nothing. 
<laughs> this. this is not coming from me, girl. So whenever we took a test in grad school, I was always the first one done. And Ingrid- So annoyed. I'm like, really? <laughs> really? She would literally pick her head up, look at me and laugh out loud every time I went and handed in a test. Because I am like a like cram it all in and dump it all out on the paper kind of test taker. So I don't take my time. I don't go back and check. I mean, you guys, if you're listening and you're, and you, you know, tests are hard for you, I'm sorry, please don't hate me. But for me, that's what works. I just cram it all in and then I get the paper in front of me and I just dump it all out and leave. <laughs> like before I can make any changes, before I can second guess myself, before I can do anything, I'm like, just get this paper away from me. I'm done. I actually took a test in college at, you know, at UCF to, um, clep out of taking a language, my language requirement. I actually was taking American sign language, but they didn't offer the class in the time that I needed it to be in order to graduate. And I just didn't want to have to deal with it anymore because I didn't want to push back my graduation date over a language credit. So I took a, a Hebrew test because I speak Hebrew. Um, uh, you know, and I think we've said it before. I'm a, I'm a Bix, not a Calp. I, it's definitely basic Hebrew. I read it like a third grade level. Um, I, I, you know, I speak conversational Hebrew. Uh, so I took, I, I wanted to clip out of the test. So I went to take the test in the language lab or whatever they, wherever they had us take it. And they put me in a room with a bunch of other kids who were taking several different tests. Some people were taking Spanish tests. There was one girl taking, um, I, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, but uh, Takala uh, test. Um, people were taking a variety of tests. Everyone else in the room had like a booklet. They had like a little cassette player with headphones that they could listen to and answer questions about. I just got like this one little thin booklet um, that I had to read and answer the questions about. This was the worst test of my entire life. Um, I have never in my life, I, I took every single minute of time that they allotted and I still didn't finish. And when I was going through like reading the text and trying to decipher what was going on, reading the questions, trying to answer the questions. And everyone else around me was finishing their tests, turning it in. I, I was like sweating and almost in tears because it was so difficult. And I flipped to the front cover and I looked at it and I shit you not, the copyright on this test was like 1967. <laughs> and now, you know, Obviously, Hebrew is not standard. Not a lot of people speak it. It's, you know, less than, you know, one percentage of the population of the entire world. Um, but Hebrew is also a very young language, and it has changed so much since the 1960s. Uh, that I don't know how I passed because I think you only had to get like a 65 percent to pass. So I passed probably by the skin of my teeth, but I can't imagine how difficult it is to be trying to assess students based on 
these antiquated tests that are loosely translated by God knows who um, that don't really correlate to how things are actually spoken in that language, the words that people actually use versus the proper terms. Um, and that's what that makes me think of because I, oh my God, just thinking back on that, that was a horrible experience. And it makes such a difference to have somebody that really is embedded in the culture and really has an understanding of the language and the culture to make an assessment that is fitting for that population rather than just. I, I mean, I definitely agree. I was just going to say that. I definitely agree. I think it is clear because we're both from places that understand a level of how intimate this is that we can offer that to the speech language pathology arena to say that just translating it may not be enough. In fact, it's really not enough. And I'm just saying it may not be no. to be polite, but it really isn't enough. And so it's that kind of space that requires a lot of conversation, but we are running really over. <laughs> and so yes. we have got to just stop this conversation because it can go on forever. Um, we probably will pick it back up on our next conversation. I want to thank the academic SLP businesswoman for just coming in and sh rattling us and getting us to spaces where we had these conversations. Um, you know, Ayala, do you want to share anything? No, I think I think I've talked plenty. Yeah. <laughs> once I get once I get emotional, I just can't stop. I think in general, we all know that there's this, you know, big pervasive idea that there's a possibility for us to kind of make some changes if we want to get really clear about it. And I think there's some movement that can happen um, if we start to really kind of deep dive into what's the potential for us to make some systematic changes. And uh, that requires some strong interest, which means being uncomfortable. Um, and I don't know that our, all of our discipline is, but I know I am. I know I'm really uncomfortable. And I mm -hmm. really need something about it. I mean, I just want to see some changes for the better, for, you know, for the good of our patients, for the good of our colleagues, um, for our own mental well-being. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we, we just want to see some positive changes. I think we're there. I think it's time to actually start like trying to do, trying to do. And uh, I know that there are people that are doing within the experience of coloring within the lines and making those things happen in the right way, in the most appropriate way. Um, I'm from a different arena, Haitian. Uh, we broke the, the rules, black, we broke the rules. It, we're always the people that do it outside of the, the rules. So, um, yeah, it, it happens a little bit better, a little bit more efficiently and a little bit faster when we kind of get a little dis disobedient. So um, <laughs> as much as I can see that progress within the lines can make gains, I also see how much being outside of that. Wow. Wow. You can change a nation going outside of coloring in the line. So that's the reason I think 
I operate with the vision that I do. If you are doing it too comfortably, I don't think it's progressive enough for the generation that's going to follow you. And I want to be something significant for the generation that follows me. And I think Ayelet wants to be that. And I think every single one of us that care about healthcare want to be that. We don't want it to be like this for anyone else. I can't imagine that we would. So, yeah. Anyway. That's the end of this episode. Thank you for tuning in with us again. Uh, Like I always say, please like and subscribe and uh, rate and review us. And uh, thank you for listening. All right. Bye. Bye.